You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 45 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brendan Patrick, joined always by calling champion Hayden Dale. Hayden, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Third time's a charm, right? Not actually, no. Sorry, this is the first time we've tried the intro. Don't don't worry about that. I don't know why you would expose me like that, but it was all your fault for us restarting anyway. Um, yeah, you might hear a wind. There's a apparently there's a windstorm outside. <laughs> it's coming through my mic right now. So we got some crazy wind going on here in Texas. But anyway, we are back for our part three of Everfest's impact on the classic constructed meta. You all know the deal. We're going to end with grades on heroes based on what cards they got and how we expect them to perform in the meta. And today we have our last three, which I know everybody is very excited for because Hayden's favorite class is a part of that, which we, of course is Ranger. Anyway, Hayden, for that, talk to me about your week in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, I feel like we have a little bit of a, a cheat sheet maybe. We've got two weeks of Everfest under our belt now, right? So maybe these three classes... Uh, we get a little bit more insight, but uh, no, looking forward to it. This week, uh, I've got first ProQuest coming up on Saturday, as many, many others do. Very exciting. Looking forward to playing some ProQuest. Uh, so just been doing a bit of testing, trying to figure out what deck I'll play for the first week of ProQuest. I want to play a few different uh, different heroes across the ProQuest, so I'm just trying to decide what, what, what I'll play for the first week. Thought I had locked in, but maybe uh, maybe I'll change that, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> How about you? How's, how's your week in Flesh and Blood? Uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of testing. Unfortunately, I can't play the first the first pro quest due to something that happened that was out of my control. It kind of blows. Um, but I will be back for week two, and I'm pretty sure I'm playing every single weekend following that. Uh, maybe hitting four or five events in total. So yeah, hopefully I'll pick up a W, get that invite, and not have to use one of my PTIs. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the news because. <laughs> Something that I was saying that I hoped wouldn't happen, not because it was a bad thing, but because I really wanted to go to Poland. But apparently the the calling has been announced and it's in Poland. And um, yeah, I can't go, which is a bummer. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's right. So I called it. Do you remember what I said last week? I was like, it'd be really cool if yeah, the Polish community got a calling. So I'm glad that they do. Um, Easter weekend in Poland and in Krakow is going to be the first European calling. So very exciting. It's going to be Blitz, which is, I think it was interesting. I was surprised that uh, we're getting a Blitz calling for the first European calling, but I guess it kind of falls before the Pro Tour um, So and after the ProQuest season. So I guess that's Blitz season technically because we also have Skirmish season happening in that time as well. Um, so yeah, so just a few details on the calling Krakow. It's uh, Friday 15th of April to the Sunday 17th. It's Blitz Constructed. Uh, you can check out on Fab TCG for all the details on you know entry and uh, where the venue is because I definitely cannot say the venue uh, name, so I'll leave that uh, to you to go look at Fab TCG. Um, but the venue looks awesome. It's like this big like industrial. They put up a picture of it. it looks it looks so cool. It's like a big industrial kind of like barn, converted barn or something. I don't know. It looks massive. Um, so yeah, and I know there was like some uh, content creators who were given out uh, like golden golden tickets passes to the event from LSS. Mm-hmm. So I think if you Go look on Fab TCG. You can see which creators have those, and you can go and enter their competitions to to get yourself a free entry into the calling Krakow. So yeah, very very exciting stuff. Um, Brendan, yeah, I'm devastated. I can't go. Poland's one of my favorite destinations, um, and 
can spend some time in Poland, play, maybe play the calling, do some sightseeing, and you can take that train over to Prague for a little bit. That would have been fun. Unfortunately, it lands in these, like, <laughs> the only three months of my life for, like, the past two and a half years in which I don't have uh, the freedom to travel like that. So I'll be at the next one, I guess. Um, but, yeah, well, Hayden, what do you think about a Blitz calling? You're, 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 pretty, uh, you're pretty opinionated on Blitz. Am I? I? I think Blitz is a good format for the game. Very. I just I think we talked about it before around having you know Blitz events for like Pro Quest season, and I know there's one for is it uh, the the Pro Tour has a Blitz battle hardened right for PTI. So I thought that was you know a step up in terms of using Blitz. Um, interested to see a calling. I think the last Blitz calling was quite cool because it was the first sort of Blitz format ever in terms of you know it was like Ira Kano Warrior, but it was pretty dominated by Ira to be honest. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens is that the first kind of high level blitz events we've had in by this time what a year and a half uh so yeah i mean it's not the if i was on the fence of going to this calling which i'm not because it kind of falls right before the pro tour anyway so just feasibly i can't i can't go uh, i think blitz might put me off a little bit um but it's cool to see that we're going to have a, a higher level blitz event and we did, did talk about maybe the impact of this so yeah, people feel very passionate about a blitz calling, but I think it was pretty telegraphed, and it's also important. Like, if they're gonna print and like, there's so much set design that was uh, um, for blitz, and if they weren't going to make that format um, competitive whatsoever, kind of felt a bit wasted. I don't know. I think blitz. I've said it a million times. I think people overplay uh, the variance of that format. I think it's still a very skill based format. That being said, of course, it doesn't really uh, doesn't compare with class constructed. But I would uh, I would rather play a Brit a Blitz Swiss rather than a Tales of Aria sealed Swiss for sure because <laughs> Tales of Aria sealed Swiss sucks. So we're talking about variants. I mean, we've had worse, um, but ultimately you do get to play draft in that Swiss as well if you uh, if you do progress. But I digress. Hayden, talk to me about these com- these rule changes. This is this is a big deal. We got the two yeah, I mean, it's not so much, I guess it's it's not so much rule changes, but we do have the release of the Comprehensive Rules 2.0 by Legend Story Studios, which is, is definitely an update. There were certain things that were kind of uh, given or passed down, I guess, as ruling statements, but weren't necessarily captured in Comprehensive Rules. And there's some, some updates to how the, the game works, basically, in terms of some of the structure. A lot of it is very, you know, it's very in the detail, very minute. It's about very small interactions and just just ways of things being worded slightly differently often they still work in the same way i think it's just you know future proofing and and clarifying a lot of things and the way the game works but there is a few big changes that have come out of this for sure uh the concession rule is getting a change so you can now concede before time is called in a round uh so where previously you couldn't you know concede for unless you had extenuating circumstances during during a match uh, so that's interesting um you know i think the the sort of like reasoning given behind this was definitely around the idea of uh you know like games finishing and uh i think it's just an update on where they were before they really had this idea of you know protecting players from being pressured to concede um but you know i think now we have probably a middle ground which is going to make some people happy i'm sure some people will still be unhappy i think it makes sense to, to have this change yeah um i'm definitely not in favor of more ambiguity <laughs> Because la- the the previous rule was a little bit ambiguous. Um, it was like if you don't think you have any way to win the game, and it's like okay, is that subjective? And then some people were like, yes, it is, and some people said apparently it's not, and you could get like in big trouble for conceding. You know, 
and who knows, maybe the judge couldn't see what you could see in terms of not having a way to yeah. win the game. Um, but Hayden and I have said this a million times. There was definitely a period of time in Flesh and Blood when there was a lot of politicking for concessions, especially during turns, extra turns. Um, that that going away and not being a part of the game is a good thing. Um, but I do hope that <laughs> these rules help this, uh, this situation be less ambiguous rather than more. Yeah, I, I think it, it will, but there's, so you can't concede, there's no, like, you can't concede once time is called in the round, right? Which is where a lot of the issues were happening, where it's like, people play out their three or five turns, whatever it was originally, and then it's like, oh, then there's like two minutes spent about people being like, well, I could have done this, and I could have done that, um, like, almost like a political kind of, you know, back and forth on, on uh, concession, whereas, so this can only be done during time, you do still have to call a judge over, but you can have any reason, which I think removes ambiguity about why people are conceding um you know I, i'm not gonna win this game i'm gonna concede i don't want to play the rest of this game out i'm gonna concede whatever it might be so uh yeah i think it i think it makes sense but it, like you say be interesting to see how this kind of plays out I, I to be fair the the old concession rules never really changed much as far as i was concerned it didn't really impact games it didn't really come up much to be honest in terms of in, any sort of negative impacts i thought but yeah uh just calling out some other changes going across these in terms of the comprehensive rules 2.0 there's been some major intellect penalties um in terms of the major intellect penalties have been reduced from an ip5 to an ip4 uh i think that you know makes sense it felt like ip5 in this formats we've been in felt like basically a game loss right i've never had an ip5 um ask dante del fico yeah ask dante del fico always late to his matches <laughs> so I was that was actually a ridiculous situation. Um calling Orlando, Dante went to the restroom, which I know you're not supposed to do. And then he was uh, probably 10 15 seconds late to his round. I think he got an an IP5. Um he, <laughs> I think he asked the judge if he uh, should have just not wiped instead. But uh anyway. Uh yeah, so the changes to IP5 dropped to an IP4 is the highest as the major intellect penalty. Uh draft times for professional events have been changed, so less time makes sense. I, I mean, I remember sitting in Orlando on Friday watching the kind of drafts unfold and it felt like there were 2 hours to do per draft and, and my nationals felt very long as well. Just the the later picks felt like there's a lot of a lot of unneeded time, so they've reduced that. Um, what else have we got? Uh, an interesting one. So there's been some changes to the way that uh, cards interact with cost properties. So namely, this uh, interacts with fine center. So equipment can now be used to defend fine center. So just important to note that if you want to understand more about cost properties, go and check out the comprehensive rules. I think there's a bit of like a bulletin on how that works. Um, but yeah, that was that was quite interesting to me. Well, poor ninja can't catch a break. Awesome. So wrapping up the news, Brendan. I uh, just want to shout out a couple of things. Did a video for kind of week one of Everfest heading into ProQuest, just five decks that I think are very playable, could be top tier, could be options to look at ProQuest for week one. The format is rapidly evolving, I think. So, you know what, uh, check it out. Next week it might be a bit different, but, uh, you know, there's a few few lists in there that I think um, can be very good choices for week one of ProQuest. Brendan, I wanted to shout out, you did a, a great deck tech with uh, returning guest T. Bow during the week as well. Uh, their dash control deck list which is going to go up on youtube before proquest week one and also actually up on uh, patreon t has been kind enough to write a, a deck guide a full deck guide and sideboarding guide for 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 everyone up there so uh, you can go and check that out again big thank you to all of our patrons um, you know we do have things like that things like t's deck tech we also have our our own deck techs that we put up plus uh, our additional podcast every month 
and we also have from time to time analysis videos and uh, I think we're going to be doing uh, probably one of those very soon as we get into the ProQuest season and get some recorded gameplay right Brennan. and that's something that we both like to do is break down games break down metas and what's happening between two two decks that maybe aren't played by us but played in a you know a finals or a big match like that absolutely Hayden well like we talked about there is there is a windstorm going out going on outside I don't know if you're going to be able to keep those coals hot but if you do let me know what you got cooking on that commander cookout Ooh, Brennan you have to temper temper we're not gonna we're not gonna fire the grill up till the end of the show this week something a little bit different on command and Kong, uh, command, and Kong, command and cookout this week uh we are finishing as Brennan said at the top of the show part three of our Everfest and Classic Constructed, and uh, I've actually solicited from the community some questions around this format and early sort of questions, thoughts they want to hear from us, and we're going to cover those once we get to the end of the show. So without further ado, let's get in and talk about the last three classes in Everfest, Classic Constructed. want to just give a quick recap to, at the end of each of these classes, if you haven't heard already, we do give a grade, our personal grade on how we think these uh, are going to fare in Everfest, and those grades come from Something I want to just give a bit of an outline first. So if we're giving them an A, we think they got a huge boost. And this is now one of the more powerful classes with a lot of tools and can be among the decks to beat. B, we're, we're saying they got some sort of boost or maybe they stayed sort of near the top um, and should be contended through the season. If we give them a C, we're saying, you know, they've gotten very little uh, or they've gotten slightly worse. Either way, they might see some play and could find a spot in the middle under the right circumstances. And D, unfortunately, you know, we think they've gotten actively worse or stayed bad and they're going to be sitting around the fringes of the meta at best so brendan let's talk about warrior if we talk about warrior in terms of where warrior was in the previous season of course we have bolton and we have dorinthia kind of uh really fell off right uh, bolton had like an explosion onto the scene in the monarch meta but really fell off during tales of aria and dorinthia has kind of been a little bit by the wayside for both of the last two metas right yep definitely in the dumpster um as they would say. As you say. <laughs> so, for, for, nope, 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 not me, not me, don't come at me. Um, so yeah, it was really tough for Dorinthia to exist in a Briar meta when Briar was stacking multiple embodiments per turn because Dorinthia would like to play five-card hands and then having extra defense on those cards against someone like Dorinthia, uh, yeah, it was a tough spot for sure. And Bolton, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, that that combo version of Bolton definitely wasn't, suited for the briar meta um in terms of the raid inversion i'm not too sure we didn't see it so i guess i guess it didn't perform very well but yeah i have more hope for for bolton than dorinthia i think at this point because uh dorinthia's had a tough time but don't feel bad for dorinthia dorinthia had her time she definitely had her time uh had her time in the sun in the early days of flesh and blood and might be making a comeback with these uh new one-hander cards yeah, something that we're about to definitely talk about. I do want to just give a bit of a, oh, I guess a bit of a shout to the Warriors. And, you know, the, this this kind of strength of Warriors really is around the combat chain, right? Like it is around how the opponent defends. So, you know, traditionally a Warrior was very difficult to play against. Then people learnt and, and sort of honed their skills on defending uh, Dorinthia. And she became a bit less of, of the boogeyman, I guess, of the format. But one thing I do think is that that strength of maybe the combat chain might be coming back a little bit, that strength that both the the Warriors have, and I'm excited to talk about that with some of the cards that we're going to discuss. Uh, but I think it's going to depend on how the format kind of plays out in terms of the speed and and um, whatnot. And of course, with Raiden, uh, sorry, with Bolton, with Raiden and the Sabres, you have this kind of interesting dynamic of you have a combo deck basically there, and you also have this kind of aggro to mid-range deck, which is really interesting. Uh, so I'm excited to see, you know, what people come up with Bolton. Bolton's a hero I really want to play, uh, but I found it 
you know, less than exciting uh, as a prospect to play in the last couple of meters. So should we talk about some of the new cards that, that Warrior is getting and kind of what we... Yeah, for for sure. Before we get there, yeah, before we go there, I want to point out something on the notes. Hayden said, uh, literally written by Hayden Daly, says the saber combo and high rolling, because he sees them as one and the same. Mr. Hayden Dale, you better watch what you say. That 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 is not a high roll deck. That is, that is a skill based deck. You wrote that, and I mean, I got to call you out just so I could represent my fellow Bolton Saber brothers. What are you doing, Hayden? Well, anyway. I like Bolton, but I would play Raiden. Anyway, <laughs> should we talk about the first card? The first card is Blade Runner, which I personally think is the most interesting card that we get from this set for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's a good card. Second of all, uh, it looks like a mechanologist. <laughs> and I know yep. there's a lot of discussion around that. So Blade Runner is the warrior attack uh, reaction. It costs one at red. It says target one-handed weapon gains go again. Your next weapon attack this turn gets plus three and then yellow and blue drop down to plus two plus one what are you, what are your thoughts on like we're seeing one-handed cards like specifically one-handed targeted cards coming yeah so i've actually had the pleasure of playing against this um it's good it's good for what it does it enables a lot of the kind of the other dependent cards you know getting it's important you need go again on that one-handed weapon i saw this particularly with the dorinthia kasai Sa- or dorinthia sabers not dorinthia kasai sabers um, and it felt pretty effective it did feel ultimately underwhelming in terms of you know the one hitter comes in and then it gets plus three and go again it's like okay so you do need something else to follow up past that but yeah it's a i think it's a huge enabler card yeah the the rate on this card's great right like go again is kind of at a premium in mm-hmm. in warrior previously right like it was you know obviously bolton has that in built but for Dorinthia, it's like okay you know warriors vela people were playing like driving blade for a while to make things work whereas now you have these like you know hit and run was then like the next card out of crucible but it wasn't like you know super like if you played on the first weapon it was you know just go again that didn't feel great whereas now you have you know a buff and a go again for one resource feels pretty pretty good but it's not the only uh attack reaction we get we also get in the swing zero cost uh, play in the swing only if you've attacked two or more times with weapons this turn. So again, you know, really looking to be, it could be two-handed or one-handed, it doesn't specify, but to attack, you know, with a, you have to at least attack with the weapon twice, so you can play it on the second weapon. It says target weapon give, gets plus three at red and then drops down again. This one I'm less excited about. Uh, that stipulation yeah. of having to have attacked twice means that this is always pigeonholed into your, either it's your second blade attack with, you know, with Dawnblade, or it's your second axe or second saber attack. That's, um, I think, a little bit, actually, quite a bit less exciting to me. Yeah, massive liability if you stick this in Arsenal and then somehow get put on the back foot. Uh, <laughs> it's going to probably sit there for a while. I, I really, it's hard for me to play cards that have these sort of very strict, yeah, very strict stipulations, and then if you can't meet them, like you, you effectively have a dead Arsenal for a very long time. Maybe you just have the heuristic to never Arsenal this card, but um you know i know if i ever threw it in my arsenal it would be the turn the following turn i would get crippling crushed and then it would be back to back to back to back but you know plus three not bad at zero and of course blocks three like traditional warrior cards so i'm sure we'll see it played yep i think we'll see some play i think it just it might be for certain styles of you know like an all-out aggressive uh axis during theory or something um outland skirmish is an interesting card to me sharpened steel four through six effectively uh outland skirmish is a zero cost warrior action it says your next one-handed weapon so again with the one-handed weapon uh, attack this turn gains plus three that's at red and the next time a weapon attacks this turn create a copper token go again i think the last bit of text is maybe 
a little bit irrelevant unless you want to be playing cash-ins in your in your deck which i still think is just with the amount of new cards we have is really difficult to fit that card in um but i don't mind this card it's sharpened steel with a slight upside for one-handed weapon decks so i also really like it for the same reasons that being said using the copper token doesn't matter you are liable to potentially eat your words on that one i sure, think sure sure that's because... fine i just said it didn't matter i just said less relevant <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying to evaluate the relevance of copper from like a theoretical perspective before you get your hands on the card i feel like it's oh. trying to do like linear calculus it's like uh, it just feels like it doesn't matter but who knows what we'll see in the future yeah i have messed around with some some dorinthia kind of builds I haven't played too many games in terms of one-handed decks and uh yeah this really does just feel like sharp and steel four through six for me which isn't isn't bad to be honest in a format where it, well format we're coming out of a format where defending was very minimal right unless you're playing against old time and i don't know how that's going to shape up i think it's going to be somewhat similar there's going to be some decks that want to defend a lot there's going to be some decks that want to defend some and then there's going to be a few decks that don't want to defend um and so elden scam skirmish being you know just a, an automatic buff you know it's not reprise or anything i do like the idea of playing less reprise cards in in some of these warrior builds but we can we can talk about that when we get to the archetypes uh other cards just to kind of look at in warrior uh helm of the sharp eye of course is the new majestic helmet for warrior so it's the Attack reaction cost one, destroy Helm of Sharp Eye, banish the top card of your deck. You may play at this combat chain, and you can only activate Helm of the Sharp Eye if you control a weapon with greater than twice its base attack. Very mm-hmm. interesting. So, you know, that's again where I like the idea of sharpened steels and things like that. If you're playing something like Helm of the Sharp Eye, is you know, you uh, give plus three to your axe, you come in with the axe, and then Helm of Sharp Eye is active. But it is good to note that you can't play non attack actions off this because it has to be played on the combat chain so a non-attack action would break the combat chain so at first glance i was like oh this card is really powerful you can play anything off the top it's effectively draw a card it's not quite it doesn't play non-attack actions it needs to either be an attack action or more likely in warrior an attack reaction right yeah so you're a big fan of unified decree what do you i am i actually am just saying i literally so is this does this fall under your same um like the same category of your love for unified decree it's close. I, I do really genuinely like Unified Decree, and I think that card has seen been criminally underplayed. Um, I'm not I'm not really a Warrior player, but when I have played Warrior, it's a card that I've tried to to build around and play, and I think it has legs into the future. I think that's a powerful effect. Helm of the Sharp Eye is similar in that regard, and I think there's something to be built around there in terms of uh, whether it's a, a two-handed or one-handed uh, you know list. I actually think you could manipulate these. I'm sure one of this Helm of the Sharp Eye and Unified Decree will fit better into one in a certain style. Uh, but of course that does have like the reprise aspect right so you do need to be in a meta where defending is somewhat advantageous which we we, we could well be in so um yeah i like this card i do like this card a lot what do you think about shatter um if you're playing viscerai and you have a blood sheath are you playing around shatter as a default or do you think it's one of those things that you're just never going to really play around maybe it gets you the first time then you learn your lesson what do you think i think it's easy to play around so i think you play around it that's that's kind of my issue like shadow i was really interested when it came out i was like oh wow this this card seems quite strong you know it's only two-handed weapons but you know that's still dawnblade is still a very powerful weapon and probably the default weapon for durinthia at this point in time um but yeah if, if you know if i think my opponent's on shatter or they've got the uh iron song sorry the singing steel blade i can just not defend with the equipment right like it's annoying maybe i need to defend with that equipment but something like a Something like a Scalata deck probably also has access to Grasp and to Skullcap, so it probably has access to equipment to use. So um, the more I see this card, the like the kind of less 
the less under like the less whelmed I am by it. Um, more underwhelmed, yeah. probably a better a better English. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I'm more interested in like you know Helm of the Sharp Eye and uh, maybe even Oath of Steel, which is the the another majestic there, which is the red uh, warrior action uh, that when you attack with a weapon this turn, put a plus one counter on it. Um, and then in beginning of the end phase, destroy your plus one counters. It feels like there's a very strong sort of combo aspect with that card. And I always like, I like combo cards, whether I end up playing them or not. I always, my intrigue is always there for this. It feels like if you can set up a big turn with maybe like, you know, like a flock of the Featherwalker, Quicken Token or Time Snaps, or, you know, you are able to almost have six, seven cards worth. You've got Courage of Blade Hold. Maybe there's a way that you can come in with uh, some weapons multiple times and do a lot of damage. This seems like maybe there's something in here with, uh, with Luminaris. I don't know. Mm -hmm. well after your analysis i think i am notably less whelmed as well <laughs> by uh by what's it called I've already, yeah i've already forgotten the name <laughs> i'd be interested i think it's i think you probably play it in dawnblade lists whether it's just a one-off that you can fetch with singing um and it probably needs to be into the right meta but the fact that you can you can destroy you know relevant equipment is is, is pretty good it's a cool toolbox card. Yep, agree. Which is, you know, I think Dorinthia's happy to have those. Uh, I want to talk about some of the archetypes, I guess, that kind of maybe come out with Everfest. Previously, we talked about Dorinthia. It's been focused on Dawnblade, right? It's been Dawnblade lists. It's been maybe go tall or go wide, but it's been Dawnblade. I think the the one-handed weapon clearly gets a buff here. I think that's, there's no, you know, that's pretty obvious. But I actually think that the Axes build is the one that I would be looking at. Um, I think Spill Blood is a really strong card, and we haven't seen that card be used from from uh, from Monarch. And I think now with these one-handed buffs, I think there's a Dorinthia build with axes that can actually be quite scary. Can it sort of shape up in terms of an aggro deck that can compete with the other aggro decks in the meta? I, you know, and we talk about Bravo, Star of the Show, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about in the questions we have from from um, from listeners. But you know, this this idea of this this list being here and being able to utilize spill blood and really strong sort of sequences of, of X attacks um, and big five card hands, as well as just kind of good three card hands. I, I really like this idea of a potential access during the Yeah, I agree as well. I've played against the savers during mm -hmm. and probably the coolest thing it did was that new potion. The one that destroys your arsenal. If you do exactly two damage had that on the field. So the swords were able to kind of threaten that. Oh um, yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, so that that's kind of cool as well. But yeah, I'm interested to see. I think my question is, do you think that uh, Dorinthia Axes, per se, is going to be better than Dorinthia Dawnblade? I don't know, but I also think Dorinthia Dawnblade is potentially very good. So um, I actually think Warrior gets gets a bit of a bump in the set, if not just the sort of meta changing a little bit, but also uh, some of these cards I think are really strong. I think it's going to take us time to work out cards uh, like Oath of the, I'm so bad with names, Oath of Steel. I think the card clearly has some big upside, but how does it effectively get used? I feel like Warrior's been a little bit under-discovered. Players have been less, uh, there's been less players working on sort of Warrior builds, I think. Um, you know, the last kind of big one was the Saber, Saber Bolton deck, the combo deck. So yeah, I think there's maybe, is this, is Oath now goes into there and there's an even sort of more consistent, stronger combo, or does it look completely different? Is Dorinthia Axes the way to go? Is Dawnblade the way to go? I think there's so much to explore um and that's that's kind of my thoughts so far really so i think in the context of the meta it's probably going to have to be the one-handers because dorinthia dawnblade really gets just shrecked by prism usually um and it's not that great into guardian either we think we're seeing a lot of guardian in prism right now so i'm on i'm on the side of 
one-handed being uh, being what's going to show up. Yeah, so I guess getting onto that, if we were to play a, a warrior right now, what would you play? Like, I would personally look at building a Dorinthia Axis deck. Like, I think that is where I would start. Spill Bloods, Blade Runners. Uh, probably I would play some reprise cards. You get access to the specialization, so I'd play Singing. I would play Iron Song Response, I think. That's probably most of the reprise cards I'd play. And then I'd just play some, like, buffs, and I would just try and be trying to set up some some good five-card hands with Spill Blood. So maybe I'm looking to play, like, Flock of the Featherwalker as well in that deck or, um, you know, some way that I want I want resources on the board before I start those turns. I want to almost have, like, seven-card hands, and now I have these weapons that can sort of abuse that, especially with Spill Blood. So what could that look like, you know? Like, what could I make that look like? Uh, maybe I'm less excited about Timestamp Potion, but... Yeah, I mean, that's adorable. There's definitely a lot of thought that went into that. Um, I'd play Saber Bolton because it's the the best deck ever created. Uh, but yeah, you're probably not going to catch me on a warrior this season um, unless it's someone breaks something. So maybe during the access, but I'd have to see. I suspect that in the current state of the meta, warrior is going to struggle a little bit. Yeah, I think it might, but I'm going to give a shout out to Oath of Steel. I think that card is ready to be to be used and abused. So go and do what you will with that. Uh, just wrapping it up on Warrior, I would say probably I'm a bit optimistic. I'm going to give Warrior a B minus in terms of grading. I think uh, there's a chance that that Warrior becomes a meta player and, and sits around that kind of fringe of you know of tier two, tier one. I think I think there's a chance. We'll see. I could be completely wrong, but I like the cards we're getting, and I feel like there's stuff to be explored there. So hard to grade <laughs> because like the one-handed uh, the one-handed archetype is very obviously it's existed quotation mark but it's very new and surely it's much better against prism which was like dorinthia's worst nightmare um so i'm actually like i'm leaning towards c just because i just don't think that like what we're used to do it just feels at least what dorinthia used to do, it just feels a bit outdated to the current game of flesh and blood where it's just pushing damage and really punishing you for blocking where we find a lot of decks that end up just you know they have a lot of disruption, they go extremely tall, or they're comboing, you know, something like Viscerai, uh, Starva going really tall, having disruption, Bravo going really tall, having disruption, and then you have Prism, who's now probably landing multiple auras per turn, if possible, as well as, of course, the Heralds, with Dur- which Dorinthia hates. So, for me, I'm going to throw it as a C, and I'll, t- I'll, I'll go ahead and eat my words. Obviously, Bolton Saber's an A, though, uh, S tier, actually, above that, but yeah, Warrior, a C for me. Okay, cool. I do think, and it's important for us to probably note this, like we are now, we did our first Everfest in Classic Constructed Part 1 pod two weeks ago, and the format is already adapting and evolving, right? So I think that we're going to talk about Prism, we're going to talk about Illusionist, it's the last class we're going to talk about. That was the one that we purposely wanted to leave till later because we thought was probably going to be the deck to beat, right, coming into this, and it looks like that might not be the case. It might be that Prism is the second or third best deck in the format, but it doesn't look like, especially right now, to be... The deck to beat right so there is some some caveats around the format is changing and, and that's why I, I think if i'm using my grading i think there's cards here there's cards here that can be utilized it's just whether it's going to play out the way we think it is so yeah i think like c plus b minus i think is, is a good spot yeah warrior got some tools right it didn't get the brute treatment so um yeah i think that its power level increased from from everfest where brute did with uh with a couple of cards but overall i think brute got a got a lot of fluff sure, sure. All right, bringing it on to our second class today. We're going to talk about Ranger. Um, Ranger's an interesting one, right? I guess if we we can cover off Azalea pretty quickly in terms of never really found a foothold in the competitive meta. Uh, you want to mm. 
Call no, me it's just like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of, it's just some fighting words. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah Lexi, yeah. though. Lexi, Lexi was doing, Lexi looked like it was about, it was going to get a foothold um, in that last format. And it did, of course, in the form of ice, but not only ice. We're also talking about um, lightning and aggro Lexi was also a pretty, it was a pretty strong deck, right? So maybe just. Uh, Lexi overall is holding the torch for Ranger players. I think I think differently. I think these more aggressive kind of like dual element or more lightning based um in particular like post ban were really strong, but they just didn't get their time to shine really. You know, trying to play a lightning deck into that format where Briar had the you know, the still before nerfs, right? It was really difficult. So Lexi's a really interesting one to me coming into this format because I think it was uh quite a strong hero coming in. So what happens to that now? Of course, you get hit by the ball lightning banning. So does that make lightning less viable? What about ice? Uh, but then we get some fantastic tools, which we're going to talk about. But in terms of just Ranger hitting in, I think one of the things that made Lexi quite strong is like you have access to this, these elemental abilities, right? You have access to, first of all, be able to play both these sides of the elements plus some of the strong Ranger cards that you got from Crucible that maybe just didn't, Azalea couldn't use to the fullest extent because it didn't have the support package around it that I think Lexi has. So yeah. To me, Lexi coming into Everfest in a really interesting spot, and then some really cool cards. So let's 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 talk about some of them. <laughs> do, do you think Azalea is just like hopeless, right? Because we've seen, I mean, obviously the that deck has gotten some support um, in Tales of Varia and now in Everfest, but like I feel like let at least in my mind and what seems to be you know, from what I hear, it seems like Lexi has just eclipsed Azalea as the go-to ranger. One of the things I kind of take about Ranger is that both Lexi and Azalea have a lot of the same constraints around deck building and play patterns, right? No weapon, um, you know, arrows that need to be played from Arsenal. Like the, the deck building requirements are very similar. So I think that kind of, unfortunately, I think that means that Lexi just kind of does a better job than Azalea because of, you know, the hero ability, the access to elemental cards um, and the, the bows, you know, like I think that's kind of, what pushes Lexi over the edge. And I think that, you know, although Azalea has this like dominate ability and you get to play Skullbone Cross Trap, and that's why I think they printed New Horizon at the same hit spot is to make this kind of decision. Um, it doesn't really feel like a decision, unfortunately. So yeah, it does feel a little bit hopeless, unfortunately. I don't know if that'll ever change. Maybe we get a talented Azalea and that, that really changes things up. That could, that could happen, right? Mm, true, true, true. So let's talk about some of these cards. The one that's most intriguing to me, and I think the, the biggest upgrade that Ranger gets, uh, and in particular when I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be using my frame of sort of conversation, mostly through Lexi to be honest, but Rain Raises is a really powerful card. Uh not only is it so Rain Raises is a, a yellow um instant, Ranger instant, uh, and it says uh, all arrows, attacking arrows this turn get plus two. For some reason it's not coming off my screen, I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't, doesn't defend. It's yellow, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it is very powerful. Um, it, if you play against Alexi or even Azalea in this format, that's the card that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna see across the table first. And be like, wow, okay, that's a card that exists. In particular, the funniest situation I see this card is when people draw it off a uh, three of a kind and they can't play it, <laughs> draw it in multiples. But overall, you know that these this plus two does remain throughout the turn so in something like a uh, voltaire lexi that's uh aggressive orientated it's super super powerful yeah well you look at how strong a lightning press was as like an attack reaction 
you have rain raises, so it's one less than a, a, a lightning press, but it's on all your arrow attacks this turn. So it's an attack reaction effectively, you know, because it can play at instant speed. It also gives buffs to your full go wide turn if you're coming in. It's very easy with Lexi, for instance, to come with three arrows. That's plus six at instant speed. That is a really, really strong effect at yellow. Um, I mean, at any, any pitch value, but at yellow as well, you get that ability to pitch it early if you need to, if you draw multiples like you talked about. Also, in combination with Bolton Shot, this is like fantastic, right? Because it means you can actually arsenal Bolton Shots and still play them and get that, that, that go again at instant speed. It means that you three of a kind into a Bolton Shot, you might be able to get that rain raises into your arsenal to play out. So um, yeah, I I really like this card and I think there's a lot of synergy starting to happen with this card and cards from um, particular Tales of Aria. Yeah, 100%. Let's talk about Tri Shot. I think this one is a little bit less underwhelming to me. Um, sorry, it's a bit more underwhelming, rather. Less underwhelming? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think it, I mean, the use case that I see is just in the combo deck, right? In the OTK deck we've talked about so many times on this channel. The the infamous one that kind of doesn't exist. Um, you'd love it in that deck, I think. But, uh, you know, after playing that Lexi deck, the one that you're talking about, the one that's a bit more aggro um, and uses Voltaire, I can't... It, it's hard for me to imagine a consistent scenario where I'd want to use this card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it's like you say, it is a bit more based around... That kind of, I mean, so with Azalea, it's kind of cool, right? With like with Death Dealer, potentially very cool because you get to draw three cards off of it. So Pitcher Blue, activate the bow three times and draw three cards um, and put those three. So that's that's a really cool effect potentially. But mm. I think in these Lexi aggressive decks or Lexi elemental decks or, or you know, these sort of more modern decks, I think it's very tough to, to find a spot for that. But maybe maybe we go back and we look at this really kind of like Death Dealer combo deck and, um, and Tri Shot finds a space. That'd be... That is that is interesting in Azalea. How good is that? Because when you say it like good. that, it sounds really good. Yeah, it's pretty good. But pretty again, good. The, the the constraints of these needing to be arrows, you potentially need to draw some. So, so say you go try shot into three of a kind, right? Well, I need to draw some number of arrows in amongst my death dealers in this. So that's um, and also I need my arrow set go again. So it probably involves a uh, I'm gonna forget the name, the one that gives your arrows face up arrows go again this turn just forgotten or a perch grapplers it's going to require something like that right so um yeah very very interesting i want to talk about fatigue shot this one is this one's really interesting to me i think this one is very very good and i know a lot of uh ranger players out there like um like yuki have said that they think fatigue shot is very very strong potentially one of the strongest arrows printed and i i tend to agree this card is i mean i wouldn't i don't know if i think it's one of the strongest printed but i do think it's very very good uh so fatigue shot is a common cycle at red it costs one, attacks for five, defense for three, and says, when Fatigue Shot hits a hero, the base attack of their first attack uh, action they play during the next turn is halved, rounded up. So, you know, we, a bit of a tool against Guardian, which Lexi hasn't really had before, right? Yeah, I think we need to ask ourselves if it's good enough just in general, right? Um, it's important that it says attack, attack action, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's very relevant. Um, so, is this good enough against, you know, a Briar? Right, because it's obviously good against Guardian, against something like a Starvo or something like that, rounding down these massive attacks. But do you think this is good enough against a, a go wide deck that has an average attack value of four on most of their attacks? Yeah, let me let me rephrase fatigue shot for you then. So what if fatigue shot said, uh, when this hits, your opponent's first attack next turn gets minus two attack. Pretty good, right? One for one for seven on terms of like damage return. You come with, you come with mm -hmm. a five. It's a break point that's hard to deal with because four is increasingly becoming a break point that's a bit easier to deal with. Five is five gets over defense reactions. It requires a card plus a equipment. But if it does hit, you know you're coming in five damage and then negative two to an attack like a uh, you know like a lightning surge or maybe a, a lightning um, embodiment into snatch 
coming in for two. That's a lot more manageable. That's first of all, not only is you are you getting a minus two, uh, you're having that attack. You're actually also getting them down to a break point that's more manageable. So I, I think fatigue shot is very very strong, especially when you kind of contextualize what it could do. Come in, you you hit this, you you rain raises it over the top, and your opponent's trying to play a crippling crush next turn. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then it's floor is not bad at all. So. Exactly, it's floor is not bad. I think yeah, to your point, it's floor is not bad, but the ceiling is really, really good. So yeah, the, probably one of the cards as I have started to play a little bit of ranger, getting back to my ranger roots a little bit. It's a card that I I like uh, quite a lot. Let's uh, talk about read the glide. Uh, so <laughs> read the glide path, which is a ranger action uh, at red. We're looking at it's a common cycle defense for two. Your next arrow attack this turn gains plus three. It has opt one and go again, and then yellow is plus two, blue is plus one. So uh, it's a it's a nimbleism for arrows that also opts. Seems reasonable. It does seem very reasonable. Um, do you, is it good I enough? I mean, though? surely you'd be. Yeah, is it good enough? Is always a question. <laughs> I mean, you might be playing this in um, in Azalea, right? Feels like an Azalea card to me. It doesn't feel like a Lexi card unless you're looking at these really. The, the, what's the opt getting you right? Is the kind of thing you need to look at. So. Would I want Nimblism in my Lexi deck? Or, you know, I've got access to Seek and Destroy. Is that a better effect? Probably. Uh, so what is Read the Glide Path getting me? Well, I need that opt to be worth something, uh, potentially with Azalea, right? So, yeah, this feels like an Azalea card to me. But, um, yeah, these these cards for Azalea to me just don't feel quite good enough to be like, yeah, I want that hero ability, um, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I feel. Maybe if I could play Azalea with a Novoltea, maybe I would then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, after Try Shot, I mean... I'm- Kind of more interested in trying it out. Yeah, sure we can. Uh, Dreadball, what's your thoughts on Dreadball? So, of course, the new weapon, uh, which stops, you know, it has this passive ability. It's a once-per-turn action that you can put an arrow card from your hand face up into your uh, empty arsenal zone. So, same as, as uh, some other arrows, but this one says empty, empty arsenal zone. Oh, it says an empty arsenal zone, so that still does work. Uh, but it gets plus one until the end of turn. So, you know, Death Dealer draws, this one gives you plus one. But then it does have this passive, which says arrows you control have defense reactions can't be played from hand this chain link so uh, that works on all your arrows basically it says that your opponent when you know you you uh, come with an arrow they can't play defense action from hand. it's gonna have to be from arsenal or not at all yeah so rangers had this theme of anti-defense reactions for you know, since its inception <laughs> i remember it, it was actually expected to have uh, quite an impact on the arcane rising format because it was so defensive at that point alas it didn't uh, <laughs> I think that Dreadbore actually kind of sucks, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it just seems underwhelming, like that passive doesn't seem very relevant. They can still play the defense reactions out of Arsenal, which is probably where they would be putting those sync blows and things like that. Um, and just getting plus one instead of drawing the card, uh, I'm not too sure. What about you? I think the idea of this card is going to do more work than the actual card itself is going to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think the fact that people have to respect that someone might bust out a drip bore on them. Um, to be fair, though, like if people are busting out a drip bore on them, people might just be happy. They're like, "Yeah, my defense reactions now are, are worse, but also your your deck is worse. Uh, my opponent's deck is worse in terms of what I'm playing into." So, I think your, per- we- your permanent on the field that is core to your deck is significantly worse. Yeah, than than having like a Voltaire or having Death Dealer or whatever it is. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that's. I'll just put an edit there. Uh, where was I? We were talking about. Should have left that one in. But <laughs> I put my phone on silent after I did that call. Clearly, I did not. Okay. 
Uh, let me go again. Um, yeah, so my think my thought is that this this card is going to do a lot more work as as an idea, as people thinking, oh, what if they have dread ball? What if they play dread ball? And people wanting to minimize defense reactions, or you know, maybe playing less defense reactions in their lists. Um, and I think that sentiment that seems to be shared by a lot of you know Ranger players, much more qualified than myself, uh, that I have talked to. So. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about? I think we're going to talk about Battering Bolt, right? Yeah, I mean, tell me the use case of this card. <laughs> talk to um, me about it. Talk, talk to me about the power ceiling. So the power ceiling, okay. So it's a, it's a two-cost Majestic Arrow, six attack, to red uh, pitch line. When Battering Bolt hits a hero, they reveal their hand and discard all cards other than action cards. They lose one life for each card discard this, this way. So, you know, it's going to hit defense reactions, it's going to hit uh, instance yeah <laughs> that's kind Things of it. i probably don't want to be playing a lot of if i'm playing against ranger it feels like a card that might be designed for the future or is at least designed as like a toolbox card that you can use into a somewhat degenerate format or something like that other than that i, don't, I just don't know this is a weird one yeah that's kind of what it feels like to me so a two cost arrow at six feels underwhelming to me like it's not really what i'm gonna be playing i want my my ranger decks to be very cost um conservative uh so you know maybe you could play this with the like increase the tension plus you got dread bore and you stop people from being able to play defense reactions or whatever it is um instances are funny because they're definitely just going to play in response right yeah yeah that's what's true uh, release the tensions the card i was thinking of but yeah i guess against reactions right uh maybe this is good into a warrior meta with a bunch of i don't know honestly i'm not sure what the ceiling is on this card it seems like it's a card that's been printed to potentially counteract something that we're not seeing in the format right now um and yeah i don't know i'm kind of I, I don't see this seeing much play to be honest unless it becomes relevant as like a pure effect yeah i think so as well cool all right so how do we see let's move on we've talked about some of the new cards and this is anything else you want to talk about uh release the tension i think is kind of whatever timidity point i don't think dominate is relevant enough and it looks like a very different worry uh, sorry a very different ranger deck if you're playing that that arrow i think mm-hmm. um so in terms of like archetypes, right? Like the one, the thing that's kind of getting me most excited about Ranger, as I said, Lexi coming into the format seemed really intriguing to me. It seemed like it would have been a, a reasonable choice at, at nationals that I went to at that sort of, you know, almost uh, pre-ban uh, end of the format. But maybe the the sort of the, the non-errata on Briar was just too good still. But I thought that once that sort of pre, sort of post-ban, post-errata, Lexi felt really good coming into this format. So... I honestly think it gets better. I think that uh, if I'm looking at building a range right now, I'm looking at a Lexi deck. I'm probably looking at something that can abuse rain raises. Uh, I'm looking at something with like, I think Bolton Shot is very good. Um, I'm looking at this, probably a very go wide centric deck. And then I'm looking to put in an element there, whether that's lightning to help you go wide, whether that's ice for the, the relevancy of the on hit effects. I think it'll be format dependent and what you're trying to target and counteract. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the look of what Lexi looks like going to this format. And I'm surprised it's had such low sort of hype and discussion uh, so far in sort of the general discourse. I like this aggro Lexi deck that plays Voltaire, um, but also splashes for Channel like Frigid. Um, that deck seems very powerful. Uh, maybe not powerful enough, but it's close. Uh, so <laughs> I definitely have my eyes on it. This is actually one of the decks I was considered playing week one. Not even kidding. Was, uh, was Lexi. You might need to do some w- testing then. What do you mean? I've been testing Lexi. What are you, you talking about? Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not privy to those testing sessions. Oh, God. That's because you test in the morning with the chumps. At night, we're jamming Lexi. Um, 
Yeah, now I'm starting to think, like, for some reason, as we've been going through these Ranger cards, I'm just wondering why that deck doesn't play Poison the Tips. Um, I think that I'm probably adding, <laughs> I'm adding that to my sideboard now. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a, a card, really though, strong. right? Mm-hmm. It does. So, yeah, I mean, I think Lexi's in a, a strong spot. I'm interested to see. I think there's a little bit of, like, wiggle room. I think there's probably, if you go and build yourself a Lexi deck right now, I think you, if you just, even before you decide which element you're going to play, I think you have, like, 30 cards you're immediately putting in, and then you're deciding which direction you're going from there. And I think that's a really cool spot to be in. And I think Lexi has some power. So, wrap it up on Ranger. I'm going to give, you know, I'm giving Ranger a, a B+. This is the most positive I've been about Ranger. I spent three months playing Azalea and, you know, felt pretty... Uh, what was the word? Depressed I, is a fine word. Yeah, I was just losing a bit of hope for Ranger, you know, sort of through the formats. But Lexi was exciting when it came out, and then it felt like maybe it wasn't quite the right time. But I really felt like coming into this new format, Lexi was in a good spot, and I do think these cards help a lot. Rain Raisers, what yeah. card? Yeah, it's going to be a B for me, and I am uh, I'm personally insulted that you doubted my Ranger mastery. <laughs> like, oh, I the amount did. of time and effort I've been putting into that deck is incredible. No, I have been playing it a lot, though, and it's very powerful. Uh, it's a bit of a meta call, but... Uh, it could be the right deck. It's very good. It's decently good into some other decks that are on my radar that aren't currently super represented. Right now, I think week one, we're going into a bunch of Starvos mm-hmm. <laughs> mirrors. I, what is, eventually, we have to talk about what does that mirror look like? It's got to be hilariously bad. Um, yeah, I digress. That is definitely a tangent. Anyway, let's talk about Illusionist. Uh, my favorite class, like I mentioned on our video, um, we have a video go up on the YouTube, uh, Illusionist versus Dash. I do mention that it is a class that I've been hiding for over a year now, um, just due to a sheep, sheer power level. And I worry that my playing of it could get the class banned. Um, it's so dynamic, so interesting, and I'm I'm just like I'm a closet Illusionist. Um, anyway, Hayden, let's dig into it. I mean, it clearly is. I think it is a very interesting uh, class. It at is. Point. I think. I think in Monarch, it was like, I I played it at the start of the format. I felt like it was you had to be reasonably one dimensional. I didn't enjoy the the sort of play style of it. Um, but with these new cards, I'm you know I'm intrigued. I think it's probably not still still not one of the classes that kind of speaks to me in terms of play style. But um, you 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 have been playing some Prism. So, I've been playing Prism and Lexi. That's the thing. You don't know me anymore. I've been playing these new decks. But yeah, I really, I actually really like the new Prism. Um, we'll talk about <laughs> some of the reasons why. Because they printed some ridiculous cards for Prism. They're actually like counterintuitive to what we thought like the illusionist downside, right, was. Mm. They get these overcosted or these, uh, sorry, these push cards. Under-costed, yeah. Yeah, undercosted push cards that have a downside. And now when you look at something like... Um, uh, gosh, what is the name of it? I don't know why it slips tip my tongue because it's one of my favorite cards. I'll find it right here. Coalescence Mirage. That card is so good. <laughs> like they break that and then you drop your zero aura. Um, and the thing about the zero cost auras as well is, you know, we look at them, we first evaluate them, we evaluate their text, right? What they do as permanents on the field. But fundamentally, if you have a Luminaris, they are like sticky weapons. They're weapons that don't go away unless someone's spending an action point or has a card that deals with that. And that's very, very powerful. Yeah. Well, let's, um, before we jump into talking about specific cards, because I think there's some great things to dive into there, give me a little bit of a where was Prism in the last meta? Because it's been a very interesting journey for Prism. Prism's breakout was winning. Well, Prism really showed up, to be honest, we go back to the start of Monarch Road to National Season. Prism was one of the most played decks, but the least sort of, uh, the, one of the worst performing heroes. But then wins Vegas 
kind of disappears with Tales of Aria, right? And then wins New Zealand Nationals. So uh, Prism Prism is a, a medical, is a spike deck. Like, what does is, what is Prism actually look like? Yeah. It winning New Zealand Nationals is just like the icing on the cake, right? Because Prism was really bad in that format. Like, I genuinely believe that. Like, Prism into Briar was terrible. Um, but the answer to Briar was Guardian. It was Old Him, and to an extent, it was Bravo as well. And so many people swapped over to those decks to try to answer answer the Briar decks that Prism ended up just dominating the Guardians and winning New Zealand Nationals. So I think it's hilarious, right? Because it was the the right deck at the right time. And, you know, I think if you had asked me back in Tales of Aria, like, what's one of the worst decks in the format? I probably would have said Prism. Yeah, and then... Just this the really shows the power of this game and how metas evolve and change and then how the right call at the right time. So I believe Nick Holding, who won New Zealand Nationals, didn't play against a Briar, so he managed to dodge them because Briar became a lot less represented than it had at other nationals because of, you know, just the power of people adapting to the meta, playing old time, uh, people playing Viserai, and then he he preyed on those. He played a lot of old times, he played a lot of Bravos, he played versus Viserai, I think, as well. So he was able to to target that meta in a in a in a way. Prism's strong, right? Like Prism has this ability to be very strong. Um, it's not like it inherently has a bad game plan. Not at all. Not you know. There's some of the heroes out there I think have weaker game plans than average. Prism is not one. It's just about the meta. So interesting spot coming into this format. What does what does Prism get then? What does Illusionist get? Yeah. So. Let's first talk about Fractal Replication, because this card is hilarious. If you watch our video, you'll see peak Fractal Replications played during that video. Um, it's interesting because it seems like a card that's easy to play around, but when you look at some of the new auras like Coalescence Mirage and Miraging Metamorph, then it gets a lot harder because they actually stay on the combat chain unless they're broken. And if you break them, there's a downside, right? Playing out the zero-cost aura or potentially copying aura that exists or responding to the trigger at instant speed and playing one of those light auras and getting two of them. Um, the fall of the fractal application. It's pretty nasty. You can also play a Herald, like a Herald of Triumph, like I did in our video. Your opponent can full block it. It won't go to soul, and then boom, you play fractal replication for zero, and it's another Herald of Triumph. Um, the ceiling on this card is pretty high. I don't know if we get to a situation where people can effectively outplay it consistently. I don't think so in the context of things like Coalescence Mirage and Mirage Metamorph. What about you, Hayden? So, yeah, fractal, I think, has like a, I think it has a low uh, floor. Right, because if you draw it and it's the turn that your opponent wants to break everything, that's that's harder, right? Whereas, if oh, you draw... yeah, the floor is terrible. Right, but the ceiling <laughs> is also really high. It's a zero cost. You know, like it, it's 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 the ceiling is really high, and that's what intrigues me. And I think so far people have been pretty down on fractal, but that's because I think people's expectations were like through the roof with fractal, and then as soon as they started playing with it, they're like, oh, this is actually a bit awkward. But I think when you utilize this card and look at how you want to plan it out, and you've talked about some of the cards that it plays really well with, like Herald of Triumph, Coalescence, those are two in particular I think Fractal works really well with, then I think there is more to this card. Um, and I think we're going to see the stock of this card rise. I think it was like, initial thoughts was like very strong, dipped off, and I actually think this card is, is better now than, than what people think it is. Um, but it has to be in the right list, and I think it has to be used the right way in the right matchup. Um, and maybe it's not a three of, maybe it's a two of, for instance, because you never want to, you know, you don't want to see, you know, two of these in the same hand or whatever it is. So, yeah, but I mm. think the card is very strong. All right. On to Mirage Metamorph. I think this is the, the strongest card. That Speaking of strong cards, played. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think this is the, this is like 
the best because it probably goes in almost every deck. Um, like in Herald decks, I guess it's less good, but it's still one for seven in that case. But in Aura decks, the like the punishment for breaking this is so extreme. Um, it doesn't even you don't even have to have an aura on the board, right? If you have an aura in Arsenal or in hand, um, you can respond to the trigger at instant speed, play that out, and then duplicate it. So, so yeah, this is I think it's the scariest card that um, that Illusionist got from Everfest. Yeah, Illusionist has become like the new the new Dorinthia. It's like, what am I playing around this turn? You know, like, oh, here comes a Herald coming in. Like, you know, do they have the fractal replication? Do they not? What are they going to play afterwards? Do they have like if I let this hit? Do they are they going to tome of divinity me? Like what is what is going to happen here? And then same with Mirage Metamorph. It's like okay, they have a five card hand. I actually don't think I can break this card because what if they respond to the defending card with like Genesis or something, and then all of a sudden they have two Genesis in play? That's been very difficult for me to deal with. So yeah, that's what I love about it. Like most of the time, the, if you have enough cards in hand um, that can even make your opponent think that you potentially have an aura, they're not going to break it because um, it's so punishing and if you have an aura already on board it's yeah if you have an aura already on the board same thing um and then if they don't break it that's when fractal replication comes in and is a very good card zero for seven so uh, a lot of synergy in these new prism cards let's yeah. go ahead and talk about go ahead i just want to say one last thing as the game get, goes on these cards become better because it becomes harder to just say i'll take damage your decision trees become more difficult as the opponent so i just think these cards are like very good and then as the game goes on they get so so strong because uh you you when you, so say on turn one you come in with Miraging Metamorph, right? You say you play it into me, Brendan. We're both on forty life. It's very easy for me to just to take that, and it's very hard for you to know what I'm going to do. But when mm. I'm on say four or five life, it's very easy for you to know what I'm going to do because my options are more limited. So you get even more information of how to play cards like this. So yeah, I, I think uh, just very strong. Just want to point that out. Yeah. So next is Shimmers of Silver. This is a part of the blue zero cost auras they block for two um and they have permanent effects this one allows you know whenever you attack with lucius weapon for the first time once percent effect um put a plus one counter on it it's good right like again that effect is less why i love shimmers and it's more that it's a weapon that will stick around in things like luminaris builds but this plus one it stacks up over time and you can distribute it across some of your permanent auras as well um and yeah, it's a very, very powerful card. Particularly good. Like, these auras are so good when you do Herald, uh, you know, Herald, maybe Aura, and then drop one of these at the end. Or you just play an Aura, attack with your Luminaris, and then drop it at the end, and you're double Auraing. Um, so I said the word Aura a lot, which is a hard <laughs> word to say, but you get the idea. I think that these are a huge upgrade to, uh, to that archetype in Prism. Yeah, I mean, the art on this card is also fantastic. <laughs> I haven't seen it in like blown up, but it looks so good. Um, this this aura is the one that I think is the strongest so far from what I've seen. Just the fact that, like you say, that like sticky weapon idea is really good, and this does it to a new level where this just can buff itself. It can, you know, it can buff a shield, and then it's like, okay, maybe you you get to keep this for two turns because your opponent's having to deal with other auras, and then all of a sudden they're trying to deal with this, and you've put like two counters on a shield, and yeah, they may kill this, but you've still got a shield that's coming in for three, for instance. So it's very difficult for it's just a card that gives you a lot of value and it looks on the face value. It's like, okay, well I play it and then my opponent breaks it and I don't, you know, maybe I get a plus one counter on something, but actually no, like it doesn't have to go on itself. It can go on, uh, you know, you can attack with a shield first and get the proc. Like it is, it is a very good card. Um, and yeah, I think so far the one of the blue cycles that I've been the most impressed with. Mm-hmm. And quickly rounding it out, just quickly, talk, we're going to talk about haze bending, right? Which is another one of them. I think 
second best. It's whatever, you know, Lucius non-token aura you control is destroyed, create a spectral shield token. Ends up, I think, pumping out a bit more value than you would expect if it sits on the board, which usually it does because it doesn't look, it's not very threatening to your opponent initially, especially if there's other auras on the board for them to clear. So Haze Bending is probably one of my favorite ones from the rare cycle. And then I want to go into Coalescence Mirage. <laughs> I think Coalescence Mirage is actually pretty underrated. That this one, in the context of these new zero-cost auras, the cost to breaking this is so high, and I feel like this gets this <laughs> this ends up not being broken or defended more times than not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, I think Coalescence is very good. I think actually all the blue cycles of auras are good, and uh, they're going to fit into different archetypes yeah. in different ways. So like, I think they're all very close. I think Shimmers for me has been the strongest so far, but for instance, I could see a list that really uses uh, the the plus two or the uh, stop the trigger of Phantasm on the first attack. For instance, like I think those are those can be very viable as well. So it's really going to depend on what the the rest of the list looks like because they all have good utility. Um, talk to me about what happens like what's changed for prism in this format so of course briar gets the nerf right so one of your worst matchups is is significantly less impactful against you than it used to be plus you get all these new cards what does that mean for prism in this format like what is prism worried about now and uh is you know the the discussion was like illusionist prism with these cards is like the deck to beat for week one do you think that's still the case um in the context of seg and the results that happened at that tournament i think that um, Guardian is going to be the deck to beat, but I think Heavy Aura Prism is the deck that can beat that, right? That can Aura Lock a Guardian. Um, so, uh, in that, co- like, <laughs> with that being said, I think that our prediction is right. Like, Prism should show up. It should be re- relatively popular, and it, it actually should prey upon one of the other most popular decks. Um, Starvo is a bit of an outlier, right? Because it can just high roll the living crap out of you. Um, but I think Prism's one of the best decks, like one of the better decks to be playing into Starvo. Um, other than that, I think Prism was pretty good into, like, very good into Viscerai. Like, I thought it was, I think it was Viscerai's worst matchup um, yes. in the last format. And now I think that it's like 95 5 in favor of Viscerai. Like, I think it's almost hopeless for, for Prism to be Viscerai. Yeah, it's become very difficult. I think, so I want to caveat that. I think Prism is in an interesting spot because it feels like it got all these tools, but then the others have gotten tools as well that maybe actually end up being stronger. You know, Starvo, could, you could come up with an Oak and Old, you could play an Aura in response, but now it can also then come up with a weapon to break the Aura. So you're in this mm-hmm. weird kind of position that previously couldn't happen. And then Viscerae has become more aggressive. So do you think that that is maybe a fact that Prism just kind of needs to change as well? Like the the way we're thinking about the Prism builds right now is maybe not necessarily the correct way to look at Prism moving forward. Yeah, it's a hard one, right? Um, I actually think that Aura, like Aura Prism, is the still the best choice. Yeah. Um, I think that Herald Prism has more, like more pitfalls um, if you end up taking that instead. So, like I said, it's a good deck, but it, I think it really struggles. Like it just particularly really struggles into something like like a viscerai um and you know maybe a chain or something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's these more aggressive decks as we'd seen in the past so yeah interesting mm-hmm. spot for for our illusionist hero great great brandon where are you sitting so i, I would tell you what two weeks ago before we even played much of everfest we started a little bit of testing we saw you know deckless being sort of brewed up i would have given probably prism or illusionist an a minus i think 
I think I'm probably going to downgrade that to a B plus. I still think there's a lot of tools here. I still think it has the potential to be a tier one deck. Uh, I just think that the early meta doesn't actually seem as favorable as maybe we thought it would be for Prism. I'll give it an A minus. <laughs> right. uh, even though I talked about how bad that one matchup was, I still think that it's one of the better choices into what we're currently seeing um, being represented in the meta. Cool. like to hear it. All right, we're going to move on to some questions from our community about about Everfest. You know, we've talked for three weeks now about Everfest's impact on Class Constructed, and we've covered a number of things. We've talked about every class, uh, every hero in that class, and the you know the key cards from Everfest. But there's some, you know, there's definitely some questions out there about what does this actually mean. You know, what is the kind of the so what of of all of this? So, all right, we're going to get straight into it, Brendan. With you know, I think the question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. Uh, this comes from Rob the Gamer. Uh, do you think Starvo is too powerful for the meta, or will the Rune Blade Super Friends dominate? I do not think that Bravo Star of the Show is too powerful for the format. Um, I do think that's powerful, and it's going to see success early in the format. I doubt that success will persist. Um, I feel like that deck could be targeted. I mean, come on. But maybe I could be wrong. I am uh, I am disappointed, though, that that deck is as powerful as it is, potentially, right? If it, if it did end up being um, resistant to players trying to develop strategies that particularly would try to shut it down and it was able to get past that. I mean, that would suck. I can't, I mean, the thing is, is like, I like play, I played that hero. I, I like playing it as well. It's fun, but ultimately I think it's, it's kind of stupid sometimes. Um, and I think the design is kind of, I just really don't like the design in terms of <laughs> that being the most popular deck in, in class constructed. It, it, it feels like it's a similar scenario. And we talked about a lot is if, you know, my my first love kano was the most popular deck in class constructed yeah i might like that for like a week but it's so just yeah. different and annoying that it would actually be bad for the game that's kind of the that's kind of how i feel about starvo to be honest like because you know sometimes it's just high rolls of living crap out of you and it's just like okay cool um then other times like it's a medium game and yeah that that's normal and then sometimes it's just low rolls and it just loses as well so yeah i'm not a fan experience yeah, I, I, don't, I also don't like the design of the hero, to be honest. Like, this the go again is really interesting to me. Um, I would have liked to have seen something that didn't revolve around go again. But, you know, it is what it is um, in terms of the design space. The actual hero itself, uh, I think, is going to be very prevalent and this early meta is going to do quite well. Uh, I do think there is some potential ways to target it. My concern, though, and in fact, I, I think there definitely is ways to target it and to attack it. My concern, though, is that we're in week two, this hero is very strong. I think there's some builds out there that are already evolving. And it, to me, feels like there's so much more design space to explore with this Bravo that the the kind of the ceiling on it. I, I When people talk about Lightning Briar, right? Like I could see the ceiling on that deck. It wasn't like, oh, there's other cards to necessarily explore. Like the mm -hmm. deck felt pretty solved pretty early. This does not feel that way whatsoever. This does not feel solved early. It feels like, you know, we haven't even touched Earth or Bounty yet. And that equipment scares me so much. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm seen, I've seen I've seen additions that have already significantly improved the deck. Um, I don't know if they've been making their rounds on the internet quite yet, but they are. Um, they've made the deck much stronger, and yeah, I, I just like you, I'm, I'm, I'm worried because it's cool for the first few times, but if that's if that's really going to be the number one deck, um, like I think Fab might be a <laughs> might not be such a great game during that time. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I think I do. I do think that we'll we'll see some adaption. It's just going to take a while because you know we're in a pro quest season now. But we, 
yeah, I get a little bit of flashbacks to like Chain at the start of Pro, you know, Road to National season. Um, but I do think that this this hero fundamentally doesn't quite feel the same in terms of just the the maybe broken things you can do. But we'll see. Feels like they designed it for fun and then ended up like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's move on. We have got a lot of questions here, so I want to definitely cover a few if we can. Uh, this one comes from the Frog ninety nine. Frog ninety nine. Uh, this is a question I've actually had from uh, one of our patrons as well, Nathaniel. So do you just you know want to make sure we answer this question. Curious on your approach to figuring out a new set and meta game. Do you prefer or tend to alter decks from the previous meta until you feel like they're getting onto something, uh, or do you like building new stuff completely from the ground up? Uh, Hayden, you're much better suited to answer this. Um, I think it depends, honestly. Like I think the the easiest place to start is always to take something that's built and tuned and tweaked and say, okay, how could this evolve? What's the evolution of this? So that's often where I'll start personally. Is like, you know, is the heroes from the previous format like Lexi, for instance? I talked about. I felt like there was a Lexi deck prior to Everfest that felt quite strong. So what is the iteration of that? Like, where do I start there? On the flip side, right? Uh, something might be completely different. It might start completely from scratch. Like one-handed Dorinthia decks you know for me that's starting from scratch that's that's a where can I you know completely innovate on something where can I you know what is something new that I can come up with so um it really depends I think on and I would personally don't start any which way I think I'm looking the thing I'm looking at in Everfest is like which cards grab my attention what would those cards look like to me would they look like an addition or would they look like something completely new um so that's generally how I look at it I prefer to alter um, no matter new set or not, which do. yeah, which I don't think is necessarily a good trait, but um, that's just how it is. Yep, a lot of questions about Starvo here, uh, which I think we've kind of talked about Starvo quite a bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in the future weeks as we talk about the ProQuest season as it starts to unfold. Um, question here from uh, Tom Roadrun: Do you think even bigger than that is enough to keep Katsu in the meta? Uh, I can ask this one first i'm unsure i think the card is very good i don't think it's just even bigger than that i think it requires some of the cards from the from everfest to work well together even bigger than that i think allows you to play the the rushing river line and really probably exploit that which is the thing that i'm most excited about is it good enough i'm not sure yet uh, i think it's really going to depend on on how consistently you can get that to, to come together yeah so katsu's interesting um I just to answer the first question, right? I don't think even bigger than that in a vacuum is going to do it. But I currently, I'm the way I currently see Katsu is that it is slower than Viscerai and less dynamic as well. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where it lands because I think that's a more complicated deck to build. And there's a lot of cards that we can pull upon that actually haven't seen play in the past, like things from Crucible that could maybe push it over the edge. But right now, I think that it got a lot of upgrades, so um, I could see myself bringing it to a road to nationals, but currently I don't see it being dominant in the meta. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of questions on Lexi as well. I think we covered that pretty well. We're, we're both very you know, very excited about Lexi, so I hope that answers those questions. Uh, we, yeah, this is a good one, actually. Which, uh, which hero do you think is most likely to surprise us with a new play pattern not previously seen, seen with that hero. And that's from Will Bradshaw. Mm -hmm. Let me go first. Yeah, sure, why not? If you've got something on your... Yeah, I mean, it's Viscerai. <laughs> the deck is incredibly good. Um, traditionally, we've seen either a very reasonable mid-range version of Viscerai or an OTK combo. 
I think it has now pretty much something that's in between that can play mid-range, which is aggressive enough, but also just combo you off of almost nothing because of a card like Vexing Quillhand, which the power level in that card is severely underappreciated at that at this point, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, for me, I think it it might be... It's a tough one. I mean, the one-handed, like, Dorinthia springs to mind, right? Like, that's, that's something that we haven't seen before. Uh, but also, I guess, like... I honestly think that like a, a more aggressive, a very aggressive dash deck could be there. And I, what I think it's going to hinge around is like how impactful T-Bone actually is, um, which mm-hmm. is a card that I think has been a little bit sort of understated that um, it needs to find the right meta because I think you need to find this combination of being able to be like T-Bone into T-Bone into say like um, uh, what's the magnetic shockwave, right? To really abuse that interaction to take advantage of blowing up your opponent's equipment. But it's really going to depend on uh, which, you know, which, which areas you're playing into, which equipment they're playing. Uh, because, you know, if it's Crown of Seeds is the most powerful equipment in your opponent's deck, well, that, you know, it's going to be hard to, to blow that up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't work. So it really depends. But Dash is one that's interesting to me, and I think we might see a really aggressive sort of spin on that potentially. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens. But the other one would be probably Dorinthia or Viserai, as you say. Um, I want to go back to... I'm just reading through the questions. We have a lot of questions about, about Bravo, Star of the Show. And we Let's did talk it. about... Yeah, I want to talk about... So there's a question here from uh, from Dagan. We all know how strong Starvo is at this point, but what are the counters to it? So I think there's something that I want to talk about in terms of just planting the seed of how to start to attack Star of the Show. And whenever I look at attacking a deck or a metagame, I think the first thing you have to do is understand fundamentally like what that deck is trying to do, right? So if we look at Star of the Show, fundamentally what that's trying to do is say, okay, I have really big attacks that have really relevant on-hit effects that are going to disrupt your turn, and I'm going to play those with this hero ability that then allows me to second step, go wide and present another on hit threat with with the with the uh, hammer, right? So if we say, you know, like what are the key ones that we're seeing? Okanols, we're seeing Crippling Crushes, we're seeing Spinal Crushes, uh, whatever it is. If me as a Starvo player, as a Bravo Star of the Show player, I'm able to play one of those and then into the weapon swing, I'm probably presenting somewhere between like, what are we... Uh, about 15 damage to 17 damage, right? Depending on which which card I'm playing, uh, potentially more 17 with like a crippling crush. Then what does that look like? So it's it's that damage plus it's an on hit effect of two cards plus it's a, you know an ice <laughs> a frostbite. So I think the first thing if you're looking at how to combat this deck is like, okay, how well does Bravo Star of the Show play up less cards? So if the Bravo Star of the Show opponent, if I'm forcing them in some way, shape, or form, maybe with on hit effects, probably most likely to play off less than four or five cards, then what happens to their turns? Well, they start to get quite a bit worse, right? It's very hard for them to Bravo Fuse at that point. They're going to need a Pulse minimum to be able to do that. Plus also it's going to be hard for them to present a threat. So, you know, I think on-hit effects are a really good way to to look at attacking Star of the Show for, you know, like an early sort of approach. And I think Lexi is potentially one of the ones that you want to look at to do that. I think there's others there that you could look at. Uh, and then the next one is like, okay, well, if they're coming in with this damage and these on-hit effects, can I stop the on-hit effects? And if I can, what can I do then after that? Am I just hoping to stop these on-hit effects and then try and wait for them to have an off-turn and then I do my thing? Is that viable? Potentially, I think it just depends on the the deck you're playing, right? Like the first thing that kind of springs to my mind is something that you covered on the channel this week, which is the defensive dash deck with T, right? Is that an option? Is a deck full of unmovables and defensive sort of tools that can then, on the off-turns, get out items and start to grind down the Bravo Star of the Shown opponent. Is that viable? Um, so those are the two places. We're talking about counters. I don't have specific lists. I can't say I think these heroes beat it right now because we're so early in the meta. But I will happily share this is the place I think we start to look at. 
Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> we're definitely working on. It. I think I think on hit on hit um, on hit triggers are not enough, right? Like I think they have to. Be, you want on hit that is causing disruption um, because even if your on hits are threatening like more damage, the amount of damage that Bravo Star of the Show can put out when they are hitting that ability consistently um, might beat out most on hits that are threatening more damage. Whatever it is, whether it's mm-hmm. you know. Your lightning cards, your copsy cards, and then you get more cards, your mass momentum, you're drawing more. So I think di- disruption might be key. Yeah, disruption's good. But yeah. we've got to see, yeah, we need to figure out, we're still working on, like, how relevant um, things like defense reactions are. You know, if that, because obviously when you think about getting Oak and Olded for a bajillion, you're like, oh, if I had a D-react here, it'd feel pretty good. But it's like, okay, if I play, if I really have that D-react in my deck, does it take me far enough away from my game plan that I'm not even really winning the waste anyway? Um so yeah, we're working on it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think disruption is, is theoretically the key. Yeah, I think one of the cool things to look at is you look at these decks and so far, I think the SCG has been a move on for these Star of the Show decks and I think there's even better lists that are sort of starting to people working on now, but you look at the threat density, right? So traditionally it was like Oak and Old and Crippling Crush were like the on-hit effects and then it was just like, you know, some like Frost Fangs, whatever, uh, which doesn't even work off Bravo anyway, They're, you know, these kind of threats. So a threat density of six, that's pretty manageable, right? From like, a, if I can get through these, I get through the game. But once people start to add like, you know, spinal crushes and more stuff, does that become serviceable still to think of a game plan of where I can get through these threats and then execute my game plan? Maybe. Uh, it's certainly interesting, but I think it depends on, on what your actual game plan is. Like Brennan says, like, can I play my game plan off two cards? Can I yeah. further my game plan off two cards? If I can't, then it's going to be very difficult for me to enter into sort of basically drop in a package that's very defensive so i think it's really going to depend on um you know like for dash for instance okay i defend with three or four cards and then i still get to come in with my weapon so i'm still advancing my game plan while also stopping my opponent from advancing theirs to a certain degree so yeah i think it depends yeah and if your on hit triggers are just threatening more damage you are also just playing into what they want um, to do. <laughs> oh well you play into awakening so not that you should completely change your game plan around a three of in the deck but I mean, you can get heavily punished for uh, having a disparate life total. Well, you, I think you also play into their game plan because their game plan is to, to say, <clears throat> say if you're playing a five-card hand deck that wants to advance the game by getting you know synergy and triggers off those five cards, well, you're kind of playing into your opponent's, the Starvo's kind of game plan because they want to disrupt your five-card hands. So they want you to actively take damage and try and advance your game plan while they disrupt it. So I think trying to, mm-hmm. trying to battle five cards with five cards clearly, I think, is not, is not the right way to do it. So maybe if we had plunder run. Maybe. Maybe if we had plunder run, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're we're kind of getting along. I wanna there's there's so many questions about Starvo. I hope we've kind of answered those um and given people I wanted to sort of wrap that up, Brennan, with that kind of just talk about how we are approaching attacking this deck, I think, because it is attackable. Um any other questions? There's some really cool questions we might answer in a future one. Here's one from Flake. I wanna get Flake's question in here. Uh our friend Matt. Go go check out Flake's podcast. Uh, is this the end of talentless class heroes? Uh, will we see just a ninja or just an illusionist again? I think this is such an interesting question, given that Everfest is a talentless set. Well, for the most you part. are very you are very passionate about this. Uh, the answer to this one. Yeah, I don't know if I'm passionate. I just think it's. But you you have a good you you have an answer and you have a theory, and I think that. Since you've given me that theory, LSS has fallen uh, has followed it pretty uh pretty perfectly so why don't you yeah i i think it probably is to be honest i think this is the end of talentless 
most likely. I think there's we we probably get some talented, uh, sorry, some talentless heroes in the form of like we've seen with Everfest with um you know young heroes. But Bravo is our newest hero is talented. I just can't see a way in which they introduce talentless heroes now when they're going region by region to explore things. I think it's very difficult unless it's in things like this, like a completely talentless set sans the Bravo, uh, which is focused on, you know, giving everything to every class as a sort of an addition. When it comes to this new kind of exploring of landscapes and of the world of Wraith, uh, I just don't see it. You know, I could see we we even get, I mean, I called this an app, right? We've talked about this and this, I have to give credit to Jason Long here, but he gave, you know, this kind of theory of like, we're going to see the old heroes come back in talented ways. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense, right? As a time in their life where they're talented. And we've seen that with Bravo already. I expect, we fully expect to see it with all the heroes in this game that are currently talentless. And I don't expect to see new adult heroes in base sets that are, that are talented, uh, that aren't talented. I disagree with you. You're, you're the big brain on this one. <laughs> Last question, because this is for Brendan. Do you expect to see some Kanos come out with some of the new Everfest cards? If so, what are your thoughts on the new weapon uh, and it taking it taking the place of Crucible? And uh, this is from Jordan. He says, I imagine not having an easy access to plus one to cards like Sonic Boom would be a big decision to factor in this. Uh, thanks to Jordan. Jordan's uh, out in Perth. Shout-outs to the Perth community. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about um, Aether Vein and the Kano section of this. And... I don't think that it replaces it, but it does. I think it's a different archetype, right? It's an archetype where um, you know you are depending on Crucible to give you that breakpoint on things like Lessons of Lava, Sonic Boom, whatever it may be, and instead you're able to play the Crucible of Aethervein on your turn, and basically all the information your opponent has at that point is: Do I want to commit an entire card to one damage? And you're right, they could pitch a blue, and they have two resources left over for whatever you come in with after. But maybe you don't come in with something, right? Maybe it's a potion, and they've wasted their card. I think it just gives you a lot of agency and potential power as the Kano player, and then that could stack up over time. Particularly in something like Blitz, uh, if you activated this three or four times and actually hit the opponent, it's quite good, right? That's a lot of damage, getting close to like 20% of their health. So I think it's stronger than people expect. Uh, it's stronger than people think it is. Um, but ultimately it doesn't just kind of slot in and replace crucible do i think the Kano will be represented in the meta um i don't know it really depends i think Kano is one of the most medical ish kind of heroes that exists in flesh and blood right it doesn't really do well into to a blind format at least at this point in the current context of what we see which is a lot of starvo and a lot of prism it does seem like it might be a little rough just because starvo does so much damage and they're also giving um, Frostbites, which are not great for Kano. But I, imag I imagine the play pattern would be there is that you'd be taking the damage, playing it into speed, dodging the, the hand, disruptive hand disruption effects, as well as you know dodging the, the Frostbite because it would break, because you would drop the, your cards at the end of your turn rather than ever playing on your turn. Would it be fast enough, though? Um, that's a tough question. It actually could be decent into Starvo, potentially, um, but I don't know. I still think it's probably bad in Prism. Yeah, I, I don't really have much of an opinion at the moment on, on Kano. Um, I think, again, like Brennan says, medical, and it'd be interesting to see what, what players come up with. There's clearly some power there, uh, and we, we did talk about that in part one or two. Part two, I think. 
All right, Brendan, that's, uh, there's so many more questions. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who did submit a question. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. I think some of them were very, you know, like similar veins talking about the, the new format, talking about uh, Bravo Star the show. There's a couple other questions that I wish we could have got to, but um, just don't have time. I'll try and answer those on Twitter if we can as well. So big thank you to everyone for submitting their questions. Um, and it was cool to do this. I like that we got to kind of uh, have some some listener questions to tie up this kind of Everfest and Classic Constructed. It's been three weeks of, of talking through the new set. Uh, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of things that are going to happen. We're coming to ProQuest season right now, Brennan, right? So this format is going to immediately start to evolve and to uh, take shape as we head through the ProQuest season. I'm excited to see what that looks like. I'm excited to play a few different sort of like styles and heroes and classes through this ProQuest season and see what kind of emerges as as the top dog post-ProQuest yeah. season heading into the first Pro Tour. Usually, yeah, it doesn't look like what we think it will, uh, you know, week one. It is dynamic, and it does change, and people come up with new stuff, so I'm excited as well. I'm very bummed I can't play week one. Um, not This is very atypical for the AP pod, but I do want to give a shout-out to somebody, which is uh, Hemal Patel. Um, he is a merchant on Facebook, mostly, I think. Hayden and I, I don't know if we mentioned him before, Hayden, maybe it was in a time yeah. around, but he, he, yeah, he went the extra mile for Hay- me, Hayden, and Dante at, uh, at the Calling Orlando, particularly to get us, help us get some cards. And recently he helped me acquire an entire foil, you know, set of Everfest, which was really above and beyond, um, because that is not easy to do as a merchant. And he just, I don't know, really hooked me up. Great price, great guy. And I think he's underappreciated and he's helped out. Arsenal Pass podcast guys, Hayden and I, a lot. Yeah. So shout out to him, and yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, if you're out on uh, Facebook trade pages, look out for Hemel, and uh, yeah, please, please use him. I think he's one of the best out there, and he, as Brent says, he's so reliable and uh, goes the extra mile. All right, Brent, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Say thank you to everyone. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can actually see our handles right down here. You can uh, check us out. But Brendan is at Brendan APG. <laughs> you can Brendan can't find it. Uh, I'm at Fian underscore Dale, like the you know, like the tunic or the tome. I want to give a big, big thank you to our patrons. Uh, we've actually just crossed over 500 patrons, which is mind blowing, Brendan. I, I can't believe the support that we we have, and uh, you know just how how invested people are in, in what we're doing and giving us the opportunity to do this and to uh you know create gameplay create deck text bring people like t on bring our guests on um that we do on time in the round so huge shout out and a massive thank you to everyone um if you if you aren't a patron and you want to become one it's very easy links down there you can join up get access to our discord to our additional podcasts every month to our deck text and our analysis videos um and if not just enjoy our free content here on youtube and um, drop a comment and say what you like about it Otherwise, Brendan, we'll be back next week where I'm pretty sure we'll start to talk about ProQuest season and a few other things that pop up. Yeah, ended up going, it was pretty nice, right? Part one, part two, part three, and then we get a nice analysis-based podcast off the uh, the results of recent tournaments. So I, I'm excited. I do love numbers. Anyway, until <laughs> next time, we'll, uh, we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>